Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Hope you have a copy of God's Word. You could open your Bibles to John chapter 4 today. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, looking at encounters that Jesus has with different individuals and different groups in the Gospel of John and trying to make some application to our lives today. Last week, we looked at Jesus encountering Nicodemus. And today we're going to look at his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. I was doing my study this week and ran across one commentator, and he has this passage. The title of this passage is The Bad Samaritan. You heard of the Good Samaritan, right? He entitles this passage The Bad Samaritan. I hope you'll see why he did that as we walk through this passage. Let me give you a little bit of background on the Samaritans, all right? Uh, There was uh, the nation of Israel in their days of glory. Uh, The King David, the, the kingdom was thriving there became some turmoil in the nation of Israel, and they divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You have Judah as the southern kingdom, and then in Jerusalem, and then the northern kingdoms became a, a separate group, a separate entity, and they had their own rival uh, worship of, of God there that they built in, in Samaria. And we probably heard about the Babylonian exile, where you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of them taken away into Babylon, but 130-something years before that Babylonian exile, there was an Assyrian attack on the northern kingdoms. So the Assyrians came in, and they took the northern kingdoms captive, but here was their strategy. When they would come in and conquer a land like they did those northern kingdoms, when they came in and conquered a land, they would take some of the people out, and they would bring people from other nations in so that they would mix with the culture, so that that way they would neutralize the culture that was there. This Samaritan woman was in the land of Samaria, that that place where the the culture had been neutralized and watered down and and pagans had mixed in with Judaism. So that's the the setting of this land of Samaria where Jesus passes through. So if you would follow along as I read aloud, we're just going to read a few of these verses and then go through and look at the whole passage. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. That's an important phrase, or had to travel. It wasn't a geographical thing, but he had a divine appointment in Samaria. That's why he had to travel through Samaria. So instead of going around Samaria to Galilee to avoid the culture that people didn't want to go through, he went right up there through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property of Jacob that had been given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Important part of this story. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well and it was about six in the evening. So you have Jesus demonstrating his humanity. 100% man, exhausted, tired, worn out for his journey, sits down at the well. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this woman at the well. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. And then John adds a little bit of commentary here. For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Some translations say the Jews do not use vessels that the Samaritans use. So the same thing he's saying, he's trying to remind his readers that there was a a, a distance between these two cultures. 
Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? The one who drilled the well, or, uh, dug the well. He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again, ever. Interesting passage of scripture. And we're going to look at this whole section today as Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman and he gives good news to this woman who was thirsty. We're going to look at four truths today. There's so much more in here, but just these four, all right? Number one, we're going to look at the condition, the condition of this woman, this person that Jesus meets at Samaria. She was, had lived a scandalous lifestyle, yet she was religious. A scandalous lifestyle, yet religious. This is her condition. If you look at verse five, he came to a town of Samaria, this where the... the um, the property of Jacob was. Jacob's well was there. And then it says in verse, the, the last part of verse six there, it was about six in the evening. Now, the, the, I believe a better translation is it was the sixth hour. If you go to the original language, it says it was the sixth hour. So most of the good translations that are out there translate this the sixth hour, which means noon. So I believe that's the best translation of verse six there. When he goes to the well, he sits down at the well. It was the sixth hour at noon. And you have a woman, verse 7, of Samaria there at noon. This scandalous lifestyle that she lived, we're going to look at it in just a moment as we walk through this passage. If you look down at verse 17, in verse 16, Jesus says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back after they have this discussion. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have said correctly, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. This woman lived this lifestyle that was a scandalous lifestyle, yet she was religious. I would like to read you what Ken Geyer says about this woman. I think it, he, he really captures a description of why she was there, the circumstances of her life. He says about this woman, she too was weary. Notes, uh, much of the water from the jar that she carries on her head is, is, denotes the emptiness that she carries in her heart. The torrents of passion once swift in her life have now run their courses. She is weathered and worn. Her face is eroded by the valleys of a spent life. She comes at noon, the hottest hour of the day, whispers a rumor of her reputation. The other women come out at dawn, cooler, much comfortable, more comfortable hour. They come not only to draw water, but to take their veils off and and slip out from under the thumb of male-dominated society. They come for companionship, to talk, to laugh, to barter gossip, much of which centers around this woman. So shunned by Sychar's wives, she braves the sun's scorn, anything to avoid the searing stares of the more reputable. For a span of five husbands, she has come to this well, always at noon, always alone. Accusing thoughts are her only companions as she ponders the futile road her life has traveled. She thinks back to the crossroads in her life of, of roads that might have been taken, of happiness that might have been found, but she now can never go back. She's at a dead end right now, living with a man in a relationship that leads nowhere, but she knows that. But for now, she sees him. His presence fills the lonely nights with a measured cup of companionship, however shallow or tepid. 
She has gone from man to man like one lost in the desert, sunstruck and delirious. For her, marriage has been a repeating mirage. Again and again, she has returned to the matrimonial well, hoping to draw from it something to quench her thirst of love for love and happiness. But again and again, she has left the well of disappointments. Then he says this, and so under the weight of such thoughts, she comes to Jacob's well, her empty jar, a telling symbol of her empty life. That's this woman who comes to the well. I think Ken Gar captures that perfectly. Her lifestyle was one that she could not even associate with the other woman because they were talking about her. She came out to the well all by herself. We mentioned last week that Nicodemus was this religious, moral, upright man, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. I talked about this week. We're going to look at this woman that in her part of society was not only an outcast from the Jews because she was Samaritan, she was an outcast from her own culture and the women of her culture and that whole community because of her lifestyle. But it's interesting as, as the story unfolds and Jesus begins to talk with her, in verse 12, she searched, said, uh, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, the well is deep. He, and she asked him in verse 12, uh, that was on verse 12, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us his well. She understood the family background. She understood the culture that the, the Jews, had, that Jacob had dug that well. She goes on in verse 19 to say, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. She had some religious background and experience. She knew about worship. She knew about the temple in Jerusalem. She knew about approaching God. She knew about worship, yet she was living this life of scandal. Doesn't that describe a lot of folks? Trying to fill, trying to meet the need of, of uh, a life with, with religion. Yet Jesus goes to her, and he meets her where she is. There's something to celebrate in that, isn't there? That, that God meets us right where we are, that Jesus Christ comes to us in the midst of our sin, no matter what kind of lifestyle we've lived. She's a picture, I believe, of a person who says, I've done so much wrong, Jesus couldn't forgive me. Last week, we looked at the picture of Nicodemus who said, I've done everything right. How do I need a Savior? Here's a picture of someone who says, I've messed up my life. But she's thirsty. She's hungry for something. Not only is it a picture of Christ's compassion for us and meeting us where we are, but I think it's a challenge to us. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder that we're to go to those people that are outcast and isolated. I was trying to think this week of who would be a good, a good modern-day example of somebody like that Samaritan woman, a, a culture that's different from us. Maybe somebody of a different skin color. Maybe somebody who speaks a different language. Maybe somebody from a different background that, that, that uh, has offended you and hurt you. And we're to go to that person. Jesus willingly went to this Samaritan. He, he, had a, uh, he had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment with her, a divine appointment that God had already orchestrated. I was reading this week about Paul Cho, the pastor uh, at one time of the largest church in the world in Korea, explosive ministry, famous ministry, and he was invited to preach and teach all over the world. And he was invited at one time to go preach to some pastors in Japan. He had many offers to go to Japan and preach, but Cho said this, as a Korean, he said, there's no way I would go to Japan because of the atrocities that the Japanese committed on the Koreans during, during World War II. He said, there's no way. In fact, he, he had not just animosity, but he said he hated the Japanese. He kept getting invitations to go to speak. Finally, it, it came to the point where he yielded and accepted a, tempt, uh, a temptation, he accepted an invitation 
to go and preach at a pastor's conference in Japan. And so this Korean pastor whose family, he personally experienced his family, had been oppressed and mistreated by the Japanese during the war. His whole culture had been mistreated by the Japanese. He stood up in that, on that platform and he just looked out at those Japanese pastors and all he could say was, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And then he broke down and wept. That's what you call being transparent, right? And one by one, those pastors, a thousand of them, stood up and came to him And many asked his forgiveness for what their culture had done to his culture. And the barrier came down, and by the time he was done, he was weeping, and he was saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I don't know who your person is, or your group is, or your people are. You say, I would never go to them. Like Jonah and the Ninevites, I would never go to them. We're to go to them. I believe that God has divine appointments set up for us to go to that person or persons or group that maybe you just would really say, I don't think so. Anybody come to mind when you think of that? Sometimes we put people there ourselves and they're not so outcast from us, but we think they're so far gone, they would never understand the gospel. Aren't those the people that need the gospel? The ones that are so far gone? I was reading this week, somebody had said... um, that the next Billy Graham is drunk right now. The next Mother Teresa is in, in, in a brothel somewhere. The next Charles Wesley is a thief. You know what they're saying, those famous Christian leaders? They were once in a place where it was hopeless, but someone went to them with the gospel. A scandalous life needs to be reached. Even people that are religious need to be reached. I love the story. There was a, in a cathedral in Great Britain within the Anglican church, a, a very evangelical bishop had come in to preach, and, and he was preaching from John chapter 3 that we looked at last week, you must be born again. And he was just trying to make application, and he just turned over to, the, to a, a very important official in the church there and said, brother, you may have this title, but you must be born again. And he went on, brother, you may have that title, you must be born again. And went to the, to the archdeacon, a real high office in the church, said, you may be the archdeacon, but you must be born again. You may be a bishop like me, but you must be born again. And he, that was his message. He just made it very practical and very uh, application, made application of it. And after that service, he got a letter from that archdeacon who said, brother, you, you've, you've seen me, you've caught me. I've been a clergyman for 30 years. And I'm missing the joy that you seem to have in your Christian life when you say you must be born again. Can we talk? And the man talked with him and led him to Christ. Folks, you can be an archdeacon. You can have all the merits and badges of, of, of your church. You can have the perfect attendance pin. I remember when I was a kid, you used to fill out the boxes on your offering envelope. Remember Anybody remember that? Read my Bible, brought my Bible, brought my offering. You can have all those things checked off. But religion isn't the answer. Jesus is. Well, that's the condition. I spent way too much time on number one. Let's go to number two. Let's look at the challenge. Here's the challenge. To recognize that human attempts to quench spiritual thirst are futile. Recognizing that human attempts to quench spiritual thirst are futile. Again, in verse 15, uh, let's look at verse 14. Whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up from, from him for eternal life. And Jesus goes on down to ver- in verse 21 as he's having this discussion with her. 
Some believe that she was trying to change the subject, talking about where to worship and where our, far, our, our fathers worship. But Jesus brings it back home in verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus, whenever Jesus referred to hour, especially in the Gospel of John, he was talking about the cross. He says in verse 23, an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying that the key is not just religion. You need to understand that every attempt that you've made to meet that need is simply human attempts to get to heaven. We've looked at Ephesians 2, 8, 9 so many times, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's, it's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace through faith. As Jesus lets her know, there is a water that is not a natural water. It is the water that God gives. It's the spirit of life that comes. This is what's going to quench your thirst. This will keep you from having to go back to the well over and over and over again. Spiritually, again, I like the way Ken Geyer notes spiritually, she was going to every well except the well that would satisfy her needs. Tim Keller tells a story about a woman who came to him. He's a pastor in in New York City, and she began to share her testimony with him, and she talked about how she grew up, and first of all, she was a very moral person and went to church and did everything right, and then she kind of figured out that that really wasn't working for her, so she stepped out of that. And, and after she left the church, she decided that she was going to uh, make a name for herself by, by concentrating on becoming a beautiful woman, and she did that and did everything she could do to, to find her existence in that. And then somebody said, no, here's what you need. You need to just step out of that and be a, be a, uh, a successful businesswoman. So she did that. For a while, and she that was empty. And then she's telling uh, Tim Keller the story. That then somebody said, "What you need is you need to be a volunteer. You need to help other people." And she did that for a while. And then she finally came at the end of all this to share her testimony. She said, "I'm exhausted. I've tried to be moral. I've tried to be beautiful. I've tried to be successful. I've tried to be helpful." And then she said that she said, "I've been trying to save myself." And then I heard the gospel that I can't do that. I don't need to do that, folks. That is the gospel. I don't know if any of those things that she was striving to do met, uh, resonated with you, but we all try something. The woman at the well tried relationships with men. Others try success. Others might even try being a volunteer and helping others, but all of those things are going to fall short. They will not quench the thirst that we have for spiritual life. Here's the challenge that Jesus wants us to have. Recognize that that it's not enough for you to do what you can do. The Bible's clear. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nothing you can do will measure up. Nothing. That's where grace comes in. Number three, the change that I think is so exciting to this woman, the change. Accept Jesus as Messiah. That's what she did. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now she, again, she was religious. She understood. She'd heard about Messiah. And Jesus says this, I am he, the one speaking to you. One of the many I am statements in John, I am the bread of life. (laughs) I am the good shepherd. Here he says, I am he, the one speaking to you. And just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking to a woman, again, for all those reasons, a a rabbi talking to a woman, a Jew talking to a Samaritan. They were amazed at that, but they didn't say anything. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Because they knew Jesus would probably rebuke them. 
Then the woman, this is key, verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, I don't believe that could this be the Messiah is doubt. I believe that she's a little bit tentative because everybody knows her, and everybody knows her story. It's interesting that it says she went to the men. I wonder, did she go to any of those men that she'd had relationships with? She says, come, I want you to meet the man who told me everything I ever did, someone who looked into my heart and saw everything. She left her water jar, verse 28, so important. She dropped it down. She left it. Everything about that visit to the well that day was for her to get water, and she discovered that wasn't really what she needed. She found the living water. And then she goes to tell others. I love that. I love what someone said. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. That's, who, that's, that's basically what she says. Just come see a man who knows. I just, I just want you to know he knows everything about me. And I want to communicate that to you. Number four, what are the consequences, the positive consequences? Others come to know Jesus as the Messiah. When she says, verse 29, come and see a man who told me everything every day. In other words, come and see a man who is God, who is omnipotent, who knows my heart. They left town and made their way to him. They went to Jesus to discover him, to, to, to see firsthand. Skip on down to verse 39 with me. To summarize this story, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified he told me everything I ever did. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Totally radical concept that the Samaritans would ask a Jewish rabbi to stay with them. The Bible says many more believe because of what he said. And they told the women, we are no longer believed because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this, reality, that this really is the Savior of the world. They experienced personally the change that only Jesus Christ can bring. What's the change? What's the consequence here? Because of her relationship with Christ, other people came to know Christ. I was thinking about my own story, how um, my father's secretary invited him to church where he could hear the Bible taught. My father got his life right with the Lord, and then, then my mother did, and then I came to know Christ, and my sister came to know Christ, and we both lived lives of, of Christian witness and testimony, and that just keeps going because my dad's secretary encouraged him. Did somebody encourage her? I was thinking about a, a family in our church, the last church I pastored before I came here, and the little boy invited a buddy of his from his softball team or baseball team to come to church, and the little boy got saved, and I baptized him, and then his sister got saved, and I baptized her, and then the dad got saved, and I baptized him, and the mom got saved, and then they started, he started witnessing at work and w with people he came in contact with, and I just thought about how, how this just is exactly what happened with this woman from the Samaritan woman, she was transformed by the grace of God and she couldn't wait to tell others and they told others and they told others. That's the way it works. Sometimes it's just as simple as, I want you to meet the man who knows me, the son of God who, who knows my heart and has transformed my heart. Come see a man who's done this. Good news for the thirsty. Doesn't matter who you are, Scandalous or not, religious or not, you need a savior. I was reading about Hurricane Katrina this week, how the Coast Guard from Mobile, Alabama, dispatched a 
uh, a group of helicopters out to rescue people, and they were totally unprepared for what they encountered when they got out there. And the Coast Guard, one of the commanders was sharing their story about how they, they flew these rescue missions. And they flew, they flew three missions uh, rescuing people, and 80-something people were saved in those first three missions. They would land and rescue people and take them to the drop-off point near the, the Superdome. Then he said the fourth mission was very frustrating for us because we went out in our helicopters just like we had done before, and they stopped to help and rescue people. And in the fourth mission, no one responded and let them rescue them. He said every one of those people said, no thanks, just bring me some food and water, I'll be okay here. And they tried to communicate to them, you're going to be here a long time because of the floodwaters. You need to be rescued. And they said, no thanks, we're good, just bring us something so we can get by. That's all we need. And this commander said he was so frustrated because here they were risking their lives, all this expense to go and rescue people who said, no, thanks, I don't want to be rescued. And he shared how frustrating that can be when you have the hope to help people and they don't want it. Folks, that's the gospel, isn't it? We're being rescued. And sometimes we say to the Lord, God, I appreciate what you're doing, but I've got this. God, could you give me just a little bit to get me by? But I'm really good. I really don't need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. If you don't know Christ as Savior, he wants to rescue you today. The Bible is so clear that if you'll just believe that he is God's one and only son who died in your place, and that you'd be willing to turn from your sin and trust him as Savior, to invite him to be the Lord of your life, the boss of your life, he will change you. And you will have the Spirit of God living within you, that river of living water. I invite you to make that decision today. Let's pray together.